Well, good morning. Good morning, good morning. Go ahead and find your seat. If you don't know me, that's okay. My name is James. Hi, Liz. Uh, part of the elder team. And John Centennial in first service, he made an announcement. It was a bold announcement, but he said that spring is here. I got my spring pants on. I got my chacos on because I love spring, and I'm expecting a Chaco tan line by the end of today. But as I was preparing for our time this morning, we we're in the midst of a brutal snowstorm this week, right? So unfortunately, my opening story is about winter, not spring, because my mind was in winter. I don't know why, maybe because of the snow. Uh, and I tried to think of another story, but I couldn't real quick this morning. So you're stuck with a story about winter to get us going this morning. But, uh, and this is a story that my, my dad would tell us as kids, and um, it's a story of him and his siblings. There were seven kids uh, in his family, and at Christmas time, one of their favorite things was to decorate the Christmas tree, right? As a kid, you love putting your ornament that you made for your mom or your dad or for yourself or whatever, like on the tree, and you want to find that prime position so that when everyone comes in, you see, everyone sees your ornament, right? But there's seven kids, so they're all scrambling around the tree trying to get their ornament in that position. So you can imagine the chaos of decorating this tree and then stepping back, turning on the lights, and like, wow, this, this tree looks awesome, right? The kids decorated it. Uh, only to find out the next morning was the kids kind of stumbled down the stairs and they look at the tree that just the devastation of realizing that their mom, my grandma, totally remade the Christmas tree, right? Rearranging the ornaments to fit kind of probably the style of the home. But in, in her preference, uh, she rearranged the Christmas tree every year uh, of, of these kids decorating their tree. Feel bad for them. But having a two-year-old, I, I get the idea of like why you might need to remake a Christmas tree because the kid kind of loads up on that one branch and forgets that this other part of the tree exists, right? Um, I say that to say that we're going to be looking at the second commandment this morning. And this simple, really silly story of my grandma remaking the Christmas tree actually is going to bring us right into the heart of the second commandment. So turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. And as you're turning there, uh, Michael brought us through the first commandment last week, that you shall have no other gods before me. So this morning, makes sense, we're going to do the second commandment, right? So in Exodus chapter 20, if you don't have a Bible, there's some Bibles in the back, or if you have it on your phone, follow along. I'm on page 40. Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, and that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." And I don't know about you as we just kind of read through this, but I know for me as I began looking at this a few weeks ago, like my own prideful, self-righteous spirit really just kind of rose up in me like, oh, I'm a little more closer to Jesus than I thought because I don't carve images. You know, like I got this one covered, Uh, which really just asks the question of like, is this really relevant for us today? And, and, and some of you might be like, oh, shoot, I do have that like Packer bobblehead collection. Is that is that what's going on here? But I've been discovering this commandment is, 
it was timely words for them then, but it's actually really, really timely words for us, for you and I today. Because we're far more guilty uh, at breaking this commandment than I think we ever realize. And in verse 4, we read it, it has devastating consequences when you break it. Devastating consequences for you and your family. We, we saw the first commandment, it was for, forbidding false, the, uh, false gods, right? And the second commandment, as we go into it, it's, it's the for, forbidding of false worship. You see, how we worship matters just as much as to whom we worship. So, so our question this morning that we're going to kind of be wrestling with is, is, do you and I worship God as he is? Or do we worship God as we would like him to be or need him to be? And friends, I think this is one of our greatest struggles, to worship God as he is, because I think we're a lot like my grandmother who remade that Christmas tree. That all too often, our, our desire is just to kind of remake God into our image. To worship God, this is our big idea, to worship God as he is, not as we would like him to be or need him to be. I hope we can press into that this morning. And here's kind of where we're going this morning. First, I just want to explore graven images. It's not something we talk about a lot, but how was graven images used in ancient worship? And understand the command, like why was this forbidden? Why did God forbid this? And then lastly, just kind of closing at home, like what, how is this relevant to us today? How do we live this out in Madison today in 2018? So that's the direction we're going. Would you pray with me? Ask for the Lord to help us. Lord, we do just humbly come before you and ask that you would open our ears and our minds and our hearts to your word, and your word to our hearts. Lord, would you be our help, would you be my help this morning um, to see the truth that is in your word this morning. Amen. Well, let's first just kind of explore graven images in ancient worship. And as we do that, let's just kind of remember our context, right? We're in Exodus. It's the people of God being brought out of Egypt. And Egypt was a pagan nation. They had over 60 gods, uh, and each one could be represented by an image. And so it was believed that these images of these, of these gods, that these worshipers could kind of have this spiritual contact through uh, the image. That kind of was an access point to, to get the god, uh, to earn favor of the god. So like as a transformer reduces the risk of like high voltage for us today, an image was like believed to reduce the risk of using divine power. That the image was the means to channel or to co-op the power of the gods for personal benefit. So therefore, images became indispensable in ancient worship. And I think of it like this. Michael Phelps, great swimmer, right? And before he gets in the pool, what does he do every time? He does this, like, cool move. And I, I try this all when I, when I step in the public pool. I do this all the time. I'm like, get ready, kids, because here comes Michael Phelps. But he does that, that cool noise. Where I'm sure there's something like swimming technique, if you're a swimmer, of, like, what's going on there. But the, also, too, I think he's probably learned that he has to do this movement in order to have success in the pool. Any athlete is like this, like especially ball players. Like as they step into the batter's back box, like they have this like sequence of things that they do because they think that that's what's going to get them a hit. They're very superstitious. You keep doing it. They keep growing their beards because they they think that that's what is enabling their success. And that's what these these images were, which is an elaborate ritual system that they believed was the means to uh, channel the God's favor. In the second commandment, we see that God forbids his people to remake himself by an image. Let's look at it again, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for uh, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. 
Meaning the object uh, of worship, what God is saying, the object of our worship is always on himself. God is the object of our worship, not an image. Because an image always distracts. It, it takes away someone's uh, object of worship. And, it, and ultimately, this image represents our, own abil- our, our perceived ability to control and to manipulate the God's power. And that's what God is forbidding here. Because when you try to manipulate God in this way, you actually open the door to the demonic. That, and, and Satan is so glad to give you counterfeit signs and emotional experiences to deceive you. And I want us to see this. There's a fascinating story a few pages later in Exodus, in Exodus 32, uh, where we see this powerful influence of false worship using images. So turn with me, not too far, but in Exodus 32, we have a story. Moses goes back up the mountain after giving these commandments. He's going back up the mountain to receive more instruction. And this is where this passage of Scripture picks it up. In Exodus 32, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. And for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, Yahweh. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. Uh, and stop right there, just make sure you understand what's going on. We see that the, the people of Israel are actually really scared, that Moses has, has left them, and there's just this massive group of people that are in this wilderness. They're homeless, and they're very, uh, they're, they have no defenses to the attacks of their enemies, right? And so in ancient times, the bull, especially in Egyptian uh, culture, the bull or the calf was rep- representative of divine strength. So what, people, what the people are requesting is, is an image of God that they can hold on to. It's not that it's a new God that they're fashioning, but it's a graven image to represent God's strength, something that they needed in that moment. And so Aaron builds this image. We see this is a golden calf, and he declares a feast to the Lord, and it's, it's Yahweh, Lord, and offering these burnt and peace offerings, which are offerings God does require in worship of him. But then watch what happens in verse 6. And the people, the Israelites, sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And this might sound like, oh, they're going to the park for a picnic, but that's not at all what's happening here. The Israelites uh, sit down, eat, drink, rose up to play. To play actually means sexual behavior. So what most likely is happening here is that the people have actually broken out into a drunken orgy. So why do the Israelites worship this golden calf? I think it's because they wanted to make the incomprehensible one comprehensible. Meaning that they were scared. They did not trust God. They were not satisfied with him. And they felt that they needed something besides him or in addition to him to protect them. And so they, they fashion this image, this golden calf, and they worship it. They worship the golden calf as a means to manipulate the divine power and to channel his power, God's presence, into their situation which only shows us the blinding power and influence that idolatry has in our lives. Because as they're fashioning this image, this golden calf, where is God's presence? It's right there. God's presence 
is on the mountain with Moses, but they're blinded to it. So why does God forbid graven images in worship? Well, I think just me and you, we could probably make a list just based off of that story. But as we pick up in our text, God actually gives a few reasons of his own. The main one being his primary uh, love for you and I. So back in, in chapter 20, verse 4, the command sets, starts, You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Well, why? In verse 5, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And jealousy is kind of one of those words, right, that we use in English language that's usually in the negative sense. It's not usually in the positive sense. Jealousy usually inferring, like, envy, right? The desire, the desire to get something that is not yours. But when something does belong to you, there are times when uh, it needs to be protected. And it's that jealousy that guards someone's rightful possession. And that's the better, more accurate way to understand the jealousy of God. Think of it like this. Think of a, think of a wedding. Like what bride's going to come down the aisle being escorted by her boyfriend, right? No husband who loves his wife is ever going to endure seeing his wife in the arms of another man. That, that would make him jealous, and, and rightfully so. You see, God has to be jealous because he loves us too much not to be. His love is passionate and intense, and in a word, jealous. And it's by this love that God demands that our worship of him never be reduced to a mere image, because images will never fully capture the fullness of who he is. See, God demands that we worship him in a way that upholds the full worthiness of his love that he so freely has given us. So one, why does God forbid the worship of images? Because God is a jealous God. And secondly, worshiping images produces destruction. Verse 5, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, do I think that God unjustly punishes future generations? I, I, I don't think so, but I think what this is saying is that sin has consequences. That children learn the sins of their parents. And in this sense, there's like this passing on of sinful behavior from one generation to the next. It's not like in your home where the parents start vomiting and the kids then just start sneezing, right? No, it's that the parents start vomiting and they pass on the germs and the kid starts puking, right? But I need to be clear, though, first, that God holds each one of us responsible for our own sins. Yet, the truth that I think is in this passage is that bad patterns do affect us. If you go to a counselor or a psychologist, like, what are those first line of questions that they're going to ask you? They're going to ask you about your family, your childhood, your upbringing. Because the reality is that we're deeply affected by what happens around us for the simple reason is because there's no private sin. What we like to think that maybe we do in secret, and if we can do them in secret, no one knows and no one will be affected. But sin always has a domino effect. And, and this is what God is saying. If you turn away from true worship, expect a destructive path in your life, but not only in your life, in your family's life. And perhaps you're saying, right, okay, James, like what, what harm really is there going to be from worshiping images? Like, it doesn't really seem too scary. Well, I just say, go back and read Exodus 32. We see where true worship or where worship goes into a drunken orgy. Yet in the midst of this strong warning, I want you to see that God offers such a beautiful promise in verse 6. But God showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me 
and keep my commandments. You know, the sins of the parents, as the text says, could extend to the third generation. But the blessing of those who keep God's commandments extends beyond all imagination. And that is good news, right? That no matter your family background, that no matter your past sin, the hope of the gospel can cut through that family line of devastating sin. And you can be for others what others were never for you. A new line begins, and that is the hope and the power of the gospel. Amen? God forbids the worship of images because he, one, is a jealous God, and two, it produces destruction in your life, but also in the life of your family. So let's just kind of come home. And what does this have to do with me today? Like, what is my struggle with graven images? Because if you're like me, the temptation is just to write off this commandment. It, it sounds remote. It sounds like you have to get in a boat and go across the sea to somewhere where they, maybe this image worship is actually a thing. That, that perhaps this graven image thing is just something that you can see and touch, that you have to go to a museum to see it. And if that's the case, then yeah, you're probably right. It's probably not too relevant. But I think these commandments that we're studying move beyond just the physical and into the spiritual. I mean, we have to apply this second commandment to our hearts. And in our hearts, we always are remaking God into our image. As we would like him to be. Or as we would need him to be. In order to satisfy our idolatrous hearts. John Calvin famously said, you've probably heard it, that our, the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. You see, we reshape and remake God until he's safely under our control. We reshape and remake God until he's safely under our control. So yeah, I think these are timely words for us. Because these graven images actually speak to our idolatrous hearts. And simply stated, idolatry is just valuing anything higher than God. Idolatry is valuing anything higher than God. And this can be anything. It can be your thirst for influence, for for sex, for happiness, for money, whatever it is. But it's when you rely on these things, when you hold them higher in value than to God, that it becomes idolatrous worship. And this is what God is forbidding. But here's the crazy thing about idols. Often they're just good things made ultimate. Idols are often just good things made ultimate. Such as family, education, money, ministry, hobbies, charity, work, good things. These are good gifts that God has given us, but we've made them become ultimate. Instead of taking these good things for what they are, we elevate them, right? To be more than what they should be, usurping the rightful place God alone should hold in our lives. And we're all guilty of this. I'm guilty of it. You're guilty of it. In Romans 1, Paul reminds us that we're all worshipers. That actually humans' tendency is not towards atheism, as some would say but that, we're all, that we all actually are, are more gravitate towards idolatry, that we will worship something. The question is not, will we worship, but who or what will we worship? We're all worshipers. And so here's our question. Do you, do you and I worship the good gifts God has created, or do we worship the one who created these good gifts? Do you and I worship the good gifts God has created, or do we worship the one who created these good gifts? And you see, this is exactly what the Israelites did in Exodus 32. See, I don't think they abandoned their belief in God, but they abandoned their true worship of God. And they created this image, this golden calf, that to them 
that to them manufactured a feeling, a feeling that bringing them nearer to God and bringing God nearer to them. But here's the problem with idolatrous worship. Every time you value something more than you value God, you do two things in that moment. You dismiss and suppress the truth of God, and you distort and question the character of God. When you value something more than you value God, and you fill in the blank, you dismiss God's truth and you distort God's character. And I want to talk about that a little bit. Dismissing God's truth. I think we can illustrate it kind of like this. Like, uh, you know, so, suppose someone comes to me, they haven't yet, and says, I want to write a biography on your life. I'm like, cool, I'll share my story. So I begin sharing my story, telling them all the great things that I've done. But in time, and probably rightfully so, they're like, okay, hold up, time out. Uh, this is boring. <laughs> we need to recreate your life. We need to remake this story a little bit uh, to make it a little more interesting. So instead of working for that really cool nonprofit ministry you keep talking about, like, you, were, you know what? I'm actually come from the dental. Like, my family's a long line of dentists. So you're going to be a dentist. I'm like, oh, okay. Instead of owning no pets, like, you think that pets are kind of lame. Like, you know what? We're going to make it a little more interesting and say, like, you own, like, 14 cats. That's interesting. Uh, and instead of living in Wisconsin, like, I, I don't really like the Badgers. I like the Jayhawks. So you're going to be a Kansas. You're going to be from Kansas, right? Like, they've totally dismissed the truth of my life to remake it according to how they wanted it to be told. And I got to tell you, like, I, I get nervous just thinking about the dentist. Like, all those noises and sounds is going to happen and sitting in that chair and being strapped down. Like, I don't, I don't want to be a dentist. And, and, like, 14 cats, like, come on, like, who does that? And Kansas, like, Who's from Kansas, you know? I don't want to do that. Sorry if you're from Kansas. Go Jayhawks. Uh, remaking, remaking someone's life can be offensive, right? It can be offensive. And it's the same way with God. In this command, God is forbidding you from dismissing the truth of who he is. He doesn't want you going around pretending that he is someone that he is not. You know, we can think of God however way we'd like. like. I could say, I think God is a hamster. That doesn't make it true, right? God is who he is. How we like to think of God and how we think God should be is completely irrelevant. Yet we hear this all the time in our, in our, in our, in our world. Like, I like to think of God as. I like to think of God as, as Santa Claus gives good gifts. Or I like to think of God as just love. He loves everyone. Or, or this one, like, my God would never my God would never put people in hell. But, but these are just ideas of how we like to think of God or just founded upon our own idolatrous hearts. You see, we always emphasize the things about God that, we, that we'd like and we minimize the rest. Like, imagine with me, right, mentally, like right now, like think of God. And if you could draw God on a piece of paper, like right now, like would you put a smile on him? Would you put a frown on him? Like think about God. How would you draw God right now. You see, if you drew God smiling in your mental image, you, you probably captured like God's goodness and his love, and that's great. But you, but you didn't, you failed to capture his wrath against sin. And if you drew God frowning, sure, maybe you captured God's wrath, but you, you failed to show uh, God's forgiveness. You see, we, we tend to emphasize the things that we like about God while minimizing the rest. So, so why do we do this? Well, say I idolize the idea of marriage. If I'm single and I just have this idea that like marriage is ultimate, like I have to be married. And, and so currently I'm, I'm in a relationship, but it's an unhealthy relationship. And the counsel of pastors and, and good godly advice is like don't continue this relationship. 
But this relationship in time has become ultimate. And it's, it's become higher in my valuing and pursuing than with God. So anything that God would say through his word or through others, I would have to take down that relationship a notch. So I have to dismiss God's truth. Saying like, how dare God take away this significant part of my life? Or how dare God tweak that one thing I need to be happy? You know, to sustain uh, our idolatrous hearts, we're reforced to remake God to be who we need him to be. So we can continue living the way that we want to live. And oftentimes that's just to excuse away the sin of our life. Not only do we dismiss God's truth, but when we value something more than God, we also distort God's character. Imagine this with me. A guy and a gal have been dating for a while, so it's come time for the guy to propose in marriage. And so, as he should, he takes her to the finest restaurant in town. There's great food, there's dancing, there's live music. And in the middle of like their song, right, rose petals on the floor, he gets down on one knee and asks for her hand in marriage. It's a beautiful scene. But before allowing this, this girl to like answer the proposal, he goes, but, but first, pulls up a chair and is like, but, but, but first, this is what I'm going to need from you. I'm going to need you first to switch your allegiance to all your sports teams to my teams. I'm going to need you to kind of replace some of those friends that take up a lot of your time and I kind of find annoying, and you need to actually now have my friend group. They, my friends are now your friends. And I'm going to need you to ditch kind of those interests and hobbies that take up a lot of your time, and they're actually kind of boring. And you're going to actually now become a fan of all my hobbies. You're going to do what I do. And I need you to replace that wardrobe because I have a look that's kind of going on, and you need to kind of keep up with this look. Right? Like, what's going to happen in this situation? The girl's going to get up and just, like, slap this little boy back and forth and be like, this is not love, right? You're in love with an image, a fantasy. And she's going to leave yelling like, I am not going to be your fantasy. And we, we would stand up for her. And in the same way, God does not exist to fulfill your fantasy. To be remade at your will and whim to satisfy your idolatry. But we do this all the time. Through the angle, this distortion of like, if God was truly loving, then he would let me do what I want. Or, or if God is truly a good God who who's really who cares about me, then he's not going to say no to this thing in my life. For, for he made me this way. He's, he, he wants me to be happy. But you see, when we go down that road, we're not worshiping anything that's of God of himself. Instead of seeing God for who he is, we end up seeing him as our idolatrous and dysfunctional, screwed-up heart would want him to be. Meaning God just becomes a mere reflection of yourself and of your idolatry. And rather than believing that we are created in his image for his purpose, we distort and question God's character. And we remake an image that will fulfill our purposes and our needs. Remember the golden calf. Israel created that image because they were scared. They didn't trust God. So they remade him. They remade him into an image, a golden calf to guarantee, to channel God's power and protection in their life. Their idol was like safety and security, and they thought they needed that more than God. That was their idol. And today, you and I, and at times without even knowing it, we dethrone God to enthrone our heart's desires. We dethrone God to enthrone our heart's desires. And I doubt none of us 
I'm probably going to leave and, you know, grab Culver's and then go home and construct a golden calf. Like, that's probably not in our afternoon plans. But I will say this. I think mentally, we always are constructing and reconstructing images of God to remake him into a particular way, believing that in that, God will then bestow his favor in our life. Meaning that if I do this, then God will do that. And I'll be the first, I do this all the time in my life. If I'm just faithful to a T on all of God's commands, then nothing bad will happen to me and my family. If I'm faithful, well, Emily and I, if we're faithful and we're cheerful and we sacrificially give, you know, then, there, then I won't have any financial struggles in life. That if I'm diligent to get up at this time and say that prayer and read that text, then God's going to unlock like, the, the, the wonders of the Scripture to me. That if, I, that if I follow that right biblical parenting method, then my kids are going to turn out godly. That if I, that I serve in next gen and coffee and greeting, whatever teams there are here, that if I do all that, then I'll store up enough blessings to cover me when things get bad. But do you see, these are just graven images. These are golden calves that we construct in our heart to remake God. And the object of our affection shifts off of who God is and onto ourselves and on our attempts to draw us closer to God and our attempts to draw God closer to us. It doesn't, did not work with the golden calf and it's not going to work for us either. And even worse, when we expect God to be like that, I know in my heart, I get angry, I get discouraged, I get disappointed when God doesn't act the way I think that he's supposed to act. But you see, God does not want me or you to construe him into someone that can be used or manipulated in order to gain blessing. God wants us to worship him as he rightly is. Now, many of you know this about Emily and I, um, but, and, and we're open about it, um, but we, we struggle to have kids. It's been a long pathway for us. Uh, it took us five years to have Lucy, um, and, 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 and infertility is uh, one of those things where, um, you know, you have doctors telling you, like, you're just, you're just less likely naturally to conceive, and, and it's one of those things where, if, in life, where unless you go through it, sometimes you don't know the full depths of the pain and the angst that it causes in your heart, like, every day, uh, and there's many things like that in life, uh, and again, right now, and like, this season of life, we're, we're praying and trusting the Lord for another child, because if it was up to us, like, we would have a house full of kids. We'd have 10 kids, running around our little house, up and down the stairs. Uh, and that's just our heart's desire. And that's a, great, that's a great desire. It's a good desire. It's a good, children are a gift from God, right? But as this text reminds us this morning, is that good things like the desire to have children so easily become ultimate things. And I see this in my own heart, that I idolize this idea of having kids, Which, which in turn just makes the object of my affection and worship not on who God is, but on my idolatry. And so I begin to buy into the lie that if God really loves me, then, then he's, of course, going to give me a child. But as the months click by without child, my heart just goes into deeper disappointment or discouragement or anger 
And it's in those moments that I set up those graven images, those golden calves. I think, well, okay, if I set this amount of time every day to pray for the needs of others, then God is going to hear my prayers and provide a child. Or I think, if I, if I just give a little bit more money, if we give a little bit more money to the church or this missionary, then, then, God, then God surely is going to bless us with a child. He sees my faithfulness. But you see, these are just ways that I dismiss and distort who God is. All because the object of my affection has shifted away from who God is and onto my idolatrous desire. You see, both you and I struggle in our worship for God. It's our desire to remake God into our image according to our idolatry. And this is what the second commandment forbids. As I've just been reflecting over the last couple of weeks, like what a different church we would be if we lived out this command to remove idolatrous worship from our lives. And if you're here this morning, and you're just exploring who Jesus is, exploring what Christianity is about, we're happy you're here. Know that as we're tracking through Exodus, Exodus is a book that demonstrates God's redeeming love. He brought a people, a, a people, Israel, a nation out of Egypt, out of a bondage of 400 years of oppression and slavery, and redeems them. And that narrative that was true in Exodus is true today, today as well. That God is still a redeeming God. That he delivers you and I out of bondages of sin. So if you're exploring this morning, you're not a Christian, don't leave until you find some answers. Talk with us. We would love to talk about God's redeeming love with you. But for those of us who are Christians, especially if you're a Vine member, I think there's a couple challenges for us this morning. One, I think first we just need to unmask our idols. We need to unmask our idols. Idolatry is loving the gifts God gives us more than loving the one who gives us the gifts in the first place. So we just start by asking the question, like, to whom or to what has greater value than God in your life? To whom or to what has greater value than God? Who or what is the object of your affection and worship? And I found that a great tool to dethrone these idols, these things that take the place of God in our life, is just to ask the question, like, what is this for? What is this for? For example, marriage. It's a wonderful gift, but it's a created gift. It's a created thing that, that God has created. What, what is it for? What is marriage for? Well, it's a relationship that God has created to bring together two people in a partnership to serve others and to serve uh, God together. So when you, when you understand what marriage is for, that will help you prevent marriage from becoming an idol, a source of idolatrous worship in your life. We need to unmask our idols. We need to keep asking the question, what is this for? And then lastly, we need to routinely correct our worship. We need to correct our worship. Idolatrous worship is simply approaching God who is to be worshipped as if he was there to be used. So check your own heart. Where, are, where, where do you see graven images? Where do you see these golden calves that pop up that you're fashioning in your heart, wrongly believing that if you conceive of God in this particular way, if you remake him in this way, that you'll receive God's favor? That if I do this, then God will do that. Where is that true in your life? Because here's the ultimate truth, Vine family. Rather than remaking God into our image, we need to be remade into his image. And we know 
that God created this world, when he created men and women, he created us in his image, that we were made to be like God, to reflect his glory. But as John Calvin says, God cannot be represented by a picture or sculpture since he has intended his likeness to appear in us. And as graffiti mars and uh, defaces a mirror, we deface the image of God in us by our own idolatrous hearts. Yet in God's great redeeming love, he sent Jesus into our world to repair his own image in us. And therefore, the object of our worship is always Jesus. The object of our worship is always Jesus, who, as Colossians says, is the image of the invisible God, which is why Jesus says in the gospel that anyone that sees him has seen the Father. We continually need to correct our worship. And here's what I hope we are as a people. That we don't fashion an image to worship, that we, but that we be the image that worships. That we would be the image that worships Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, we do need your help. As I think in each one of our lives, we could, um, we could point to different forms of idolatry. Lord, I pray that by your help and by your grace that you would help us unmask these idols that lead us down a pathway that really produces destruction. Lord, by your mercy, would you lead us, Jesus, into proper worship of you, that that you would remain center, that you, Jesus, would be our object of worship, that we would see your great redeeming love who has freed us from our bondage of sin. So, Lord, I pray as we leave this moment together, Lord, that we would be more in love with you and have a desire and a hunger, Lord, to again turn to you as our object of affection and worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.